Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? We launched this podcast as Romaniacs four months into Trump's presidency and unlike him, we are still here. Four more years. <laughs> I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's panel, Nina Schick is a journalist, commentator and author of Deep Fakes and the Infocalypse. Hi, Nina. Hi, good to be back. So we're going to get to America, but first, Russia. Uh, what did you make of Alexei Navalny's return home and immediate arrest? Um, what's his plan? Well, I think the first response is one of his supporters said when he was boarding the plane back to Russia was that he has balls of steel. And it's really hard to disagree with that sentiment because... He was a man who only weeks ago was really at death's door due to a politically motivated assassination attempt. And of course, it's highly unlikely that this attempt on his life didn't get sanctioned without the highest authority in the Kremlin. With regard to his plan, um, you know, is there a plan or is this sheer kamikaze stuff? I think obviously he's a shrewd political operator and he's weighed up the risks, gamed it out. And by returning to Russia, he is upping the stakes. He is directly challenging President Putin, and perhaps he feels some security in the knowledge that the world is watching. However, this is still a very dangerous game of Russian roulette, so let's see where it takes us. I mean, Navalny is a self-described nationalist who's made many Islamophobic statements. Um, do you think he gets overly valorized in the West because he's up against somebody worse? I think that's true to a certain extent, because, you know, with Putin at the helm of Russia's if you want to call it boisterous new brand of nationalism and the increasingly bold strategic interventions uh, he's been heralding when it comes to undermining the Western alliance has almost become the James Bond villain of the world. Uh, so it's easy to lionize anyone who stands in opposition to Putin. And perhaps we're fetishizing Navalny as this beacon of democracy and liberalism. I mean, I think he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize last year. But I think it would be naive in reality to think that he's aligned with Western liberal ideologies. And that's quite clear from the things that he said. Um, I think his opposition to Putin has to be understood in the context of Russia, because I don't think we can misunderstand him as being a passionate supporter of NATO or the EU or the United States. There's always that problem, I think, when, um, when there's somebody that you don't like, um, you, you sort of tend to assume that the opposition to them is kind of groovy and liberal and sort of Western friendly, um, when, of course, it's more complicated than that in, in lots of different countries. Also joining us is Naomi Smith, Chief Exec of Best of Britain. Hi, Naomi. Hello. Hi. 
Um, stories of Brexit customs disasters are piling up like rotting meat, and musicians most recently are furious about the UK's apparent rejection of a scheme that would have enabled them to tour Europe visa-free, um, which sort of makes potentially makes tours prohibitively difficult, expensive. Is the government going to be pressured into fiddling with details of our trade relations with the EU anytime soon if stories like this keep breaking? I mean, look, first of all, it's probably worth saying that it's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, but months after the damn thing has sunk, while in the meantime, the EU goes around claiming salvage rights. That said, of course, the pressure is certainly mounting. You know, hauliers, manufacturers, supermarket giants, retailers alike are not giving the government an inch at the moment in terms of blaming, trying to blame this on COVID, which, of course, is what minister after minister is trying to do. Um, and if uh, the FT reports are to be believed, um, the government are certainly having second thoughts uh, about turning their noses up at, at visa-free travel for musicians. And the industry is, is really beginning to make noise on that front. And we know that Oliver Dowden at DCMS has had to meet with some industry figures. So, yes, they are forever going to have to tweak this thing because it isn't fit for purpose. It isn't a modern trading deal. And uh, some of those things are going to have to be done sooner rather than later. Um, and Theresa May recently delivered a speech attacking Johnson for abandoning global moral leadership. Now, obviously, uh, Theresa May's record is not spotless. Um, but do you think this speech was time to coincide with the change of president and a president to whom Johnson has often been compared? I mean, look, I will come back to the timing point, but of, of course, it, it's good to see anyone calling out the law-breaking acts of, of this government. But as we know, in the world of campaigns, the messenger is as important, if not more important, than the message itself. And, and as messenger, this rather felt like, you know, the Maybot calling the kettle black. So leaving aside Windrush um, and, and the hostile environment, you have to be I think probably quite poor at reading the global room to think that Britain has been viewed elsewhere as a beacon of moral leadership in the past few years. And, you know, that that's even if you're the kind of person that gets your Theresa May's news fix from the Daily Mail. And of course, it was the Daily Mail that, that ran this story on their front page about Theresa May calling out the government. And yes, of course, she timed it to absolute perfection. Joining us to talk about the historic changeover in Washington, we're delighted to have a guest who knows US politics firsthand. Kim Darrick, Baron Darrick of Q, was the British ambassador to the United States from January 2016 to July 2019. Before that, he was the UK's national security advisor and permanent representative to the European Union. In what was widely seen as a hit job from the Trump-Brexit political axis, he was forced to resign after secret diplomatic cables, in which he described the Trump administration as inept and insecure, were leaked, and Boris Johnson failed to back him. He's since written a book called Collateral Damage, Britain, America and Europe in the Age of Trump. Kim Derrick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for the invitation. Um, so how early on did you realise that Trump wasn't going to get any better? Was there like a brief period at the beginning when you hoped uh, internally, you know, that he might grow into the presidency? Do you know, I expected there to be, but there really wasn't. I got to Washington in January 2016. So I was there all through the campaign and then uh, through uh, the election night and inauguration in, in January 2017. And there was never a moment, really, where you felt that this guy would be a normal president. There were plenty of Republicans, senior Republicans, who would tell you that what he said on the campaign trail was the campaign, and that once he became president, 
he would return to the center, he would govern for all Americans, and he would become much more presidential. And I always doubted it. And really, from that extraordinary, dark, dystopian inaugural speech that he did, his inaugural address, which was like no other, I think, in um, at least in recent American history, through to a week into his presidency, banning travel from those seven mainly Muslim countries, um, which he announced just after <clears throat> Theresa May left uh, after having the first the first foreign visit to uh, to the Trump White House. It seemed to me that 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 the the Trump administration would be a continuation of the the Trump campaign. I mean, even then, did you did you ever think that you would see a president refuse to attend his successor's inauguration and indeed refuse to concede that he'd lost the election? Well, without wanting to to um, pick up the book, I actually predicted in um, in the book that if Biden won, that Trump wouldn't attend his inauguration. And if you followed this guy hour by hour through all of his presidency, it was a no-brainer that he would not be able to cope with defeat in the election. Uh, and in fact, it wasn't just reading him. We knew lots of senior people in the Trump administration, and they would come to one-to-one lunches and then open up a bit. And several of them said, you know, if he were to lose the election, God knows what he will do. They said he would never accept the result. He'll never turn up the inauguration. He'll never do a formal handover. So, um, in fact, they would say if he thinks he's going to lose, if he's sure he's going to lose, he will withdraw before it gets to the election because he won't be able to cope with losing. In order to do a, do a job, a diplomat has to have a kind of, uh, you know, the sort of private messages and thoughts as well as the public ones. Do you think that the, the, what happened around the, the leaked cables has sort of damaged the, the Foreign Service's ability to be, to be honest about, about leaders about whom it has serious reservations, reservations that do, of course, matter to you know, the other countries? You know, it's not the first time that cables have, um, have leaked. In fact, one of my predecessors in Washington wrote some stuff about Obama when Obama was running back in 2007, um, rather than when he had become president, but wasn't entirely favorable. But the Obama team just basically ignored it. They behaved as if it had never happened. There was a whole dump on WikiLeaks about a decade ago of State Department cables from around the world, which were pretty critical of a whole range of international leaders. So no one uh, serious in politics should have any doubt that foreign diplomats will report it as they see it, and some of it, if things are going badly, will be quite critical. But this was, of course, a guy who never served in public office until he won the most powerful office on the planet, and who was just extraordinarily thin-skinned. Uh, and unable to cope with criticism from any source. I mean, you know, if you look back through through his feuds, like the one he has with Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, I mean, he is in the most powerful office on earth, but he picks fights with all sorts of people, including people in show business in America and politicians uh, around the world, not necessarily other heads of state or, or heads of government, but uh, anyone who crosses his... Um, 
you know, his line of view. And I just wanted to ask you quickly about something that's happened uh, back home. The Tory MP has just voted down Lord Alton's cross-party amendment uh, to the trade bill, which would have prohibited trade deals with countries committing genocide. And unusually, people like Ian Duncan Smith and David Davis voted with the opposition parties. As a diplomat, what do you think of this? Is this is this sort of post-Brexit real politic in, in action? Look, I find, I mean, I have to say... Uh, after 40-year, and this isn't the bravest position, I confess, 40-year career in the in the Foreign Service, and I lived through, I was Robin Cook's press spokesman in my career, so I lived through the whole ethical foreign policy thing, which some people link to this. And I've watched Brexit, I'm not a huge fan of Brexit, um, but uh, one of the things, one of the so-called dividends of Brexit was going to be doing trade deals with you know, other countries all around the world. Um, but then I heard Lib's Trust on television last night saying, well, we're not going to have a trade deal with China, which is, by the way, a huge and important market for us. I think that once you get into, especially giving the whole responsibility to the courts, to labels like genocide, let's be no doubt what the Chinese do to the Uyghurs is appalling. And there are labor camps and all sorts of dreadful things going on there. And they deserve to be called out publicly for it and this kind of thing. But A, handing things to courts so the government kind of loses total control of it. And B, you know, the whole genocide thing. Of course it is appropriate in some cases. I don't know enough about, about what happens in China. I'm not a China specialist to know quite what the numbers are and whether it is appropriate to call it genocide. But I do know that that label that description genocide is extraordinarily um uh since and if you, you know, if you go around if you do it to china then within months maybe within weeks you will have the same question well if china's committed genocide in case of Uyghurs, what about country a or country b or country c and all these things and how far back in time do you go and this kind of thing and it just well for a foreign service for a foreign secretary for diplomats it becomes very, very difficult territory with all sorts of extraordinary tricky judgments. And by the way, last thing, again, not to sound massively courageous, but the one thing you can guarantee is if we were to label Chinese uh, government behavior towards the Uyghurs of genocide, there would be a Chinese response, a very sharp one, that would, uh, that would play against our economic and commercial interests and that would, would, you know, damage companies in this country, I think very likely lose jobs and so on. So if you're going into this, be aware that there will be consequences. The Chinese won't just say, oh, fair cop, yes, <laughs> no ways. Busted. We will be talking about the presidency with Kim Darroch in more depth later. Plus, Brexit and COVID-19 have led to an unprecedented exodus of migrants to the UK, according to the Economic Statistics Centre of Excellence. It's likely to be the largest population decline since the Second World War. Beyond the economic consequences, what will that mean for the culture and atmosphere of our cities? And will immigration policy ever improve? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers at the end of the show, why do so many middle class British people insist that they're working class? If you'd like to hear that part of the podcast, search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast, sign up and you'll get the extended version every week without ads, plus every edition of the podcast early and exclusive merchandise too. And all our mugs and t-shirts are sourced within the UK, so there's no Brexit surcharge either. <laughs> On Wednesday, Donald Trump made his farewell address and left the White House for good to the dignified strains of YMCA by the village people. Then Joe Biden and Kamala Harris took the oath of office and a new era officially began. To quote Gerald Ford, America's long national nightmare is over. 
Nina, how did you feel at the moment that Trump was no longer president? I think I felt like many people in the world, you know, just a massive sigh of relief is is the nightmare finally over. And then almost a sense of disbelief, you know, when you watched his remarks, uh, as you said, departing to YMCA, just did those last four years really happen? Um, I think those were, I think, almost universally shared sentiments. Yeah, because Biden's inauguration was sort of satisfyingly normal. It was all the, all the kind of regular stuff back again. <laughs> exactly. And almost I mean, a year ago, I would have thought that Trump's chances of winning the re-election were good. And had the pandemic not happened when it had happened, um, I don't know if Biden would have won the election. Um, I can only hope that he would have. But anyway, he won. Right. Yay. Um, and he's already begun signing a flurry of executive orders uh, to reverse Trump's policies on immigration, climate and so on. Um, how much of Trump's legacy can he undo uh, at the stroke of a pen? Look, I think Biden has his work cut out. He can do a lot like Trump did via executive order. But if you consider the polarized nature of US politics, even though Trump is out of the White House now, I believe that Trumpism is still alive. And there are many powerful political operators who are you know, desperate to pick up the mantle of being Trump's successor because he has galvanized a proportion of the American public um, to almost such hysteria with such faithful kind of following that I think many politicians want to claim that demographic for themselves. You just need to consider the number of Republican politicians who went along, even after the storming of the Capitol, with the disinformation that the president of the United States had, had been perpetrating for months, that somehow massive fraud had been perpetrated on the American people in the election. So interesting to see how people, like I say, who want to pick up that mantle, like Ted Cruz, who's angling himself as you know the one to take on the reprobates, if you will, have already come out pretty strong against uh, rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, saying that somehow the president cares more of the citizens of Paris than the workers in Pennsylvania, as if... Yes, because that makes sense. But no, Biden has his work cut out, even though they have the House, they have the Senate, they have the presidency. The rifts in American politics are deep. Um, so Biden also plans to take uh, action on COVID-19, um, promising some mass vaccinations. Amazingly, his event on Tuesday night, uh, I think at the National Mall, as the death toll approached 400,000, was the first ever tribute to the victims of the virus. Trump just simply hadn't thought to do one. We talk about Trump's high crimes and misdemeanors, um, the reason for his dual impeachment. But was do you think, you know, we will find his mishandling of the virus was his worst crime? And, th and that's going to be the really shocking part of his record. I think this is obvious one of the worst and most catastrophic blunders by Trump and his administration. Not only did they dismantle the pandemic's response team in the National Security Council before the pandemic hit, but they had steadily been cutting funding for public health programs that could have assisted in rapid response to the virus ahead of COVID. And then, of course, when the pandemic did hit, the president was one of the worst perpetrators of COVID disinformation. This has been quantified now by numerous studies. And we know that bad information is dangerous, but in the case of COVID, it literally kills. And when you just think about the deaths, 
400,000 American lives. That is the same number of American lives who were lost in the Second World War, which was only the second most deadliest war in American history. Only the Civil War trumps um, the number of casualties compared to COVID. And, you know, COVID could still overtake that. So when you think the commander in chief, the man who took an oath to protect the country, his people, he's covening mass rallies in the midst of a global pandemic. I mean, the sheer stupidity, the callousness, the abrogation of duty, I think without a doubt when the history books are written, that this chapter with COVID will go down as one of the most abysmal, catastrophic blunders by Trump and his administration. Naomi, Trump's final days included a death row killing spree and a bunch of pardons for uh, his crooked associates and a couple of rappers. Um, how can America begin to recover from such a kind of a sordid presidency, not just a presidency that you might disagree with and just, you know, because uh, it's, it's not your politics, but one that was so sort of degrading? Mm. I mean, whether Americans loved or loathed him, they did spend every day of the last four years waiting for his latest ill-conceived, as Nina has said, often dangerous comment uh, of the day, either to shame it or share it all over social media. And to that extent, America has been traumatized by this man. Uh, whether that's a Stockholm syndrome kind of trauma or, or, or a, a more upfront one. And, and they've lived, actually, as many of us in the UK have, thanks to the lies peddled by the Brexit ultras, in a world that's devoid of objective reality. And the continual lies about, you know, things like how many votes he got, which direction a hurricane was heading in, how many people had jobs or not, how big his tax cuts were. His answers were never determined by facts. They were whatever he said they were. Um, and uh, and so this is, you know, it, it's just going to take time and time is a great healer. Uh, and Americans are now at least free for now. Uh, who knows what he's going to do in the future? Free from the relentlessness of his ego. But recovery will take time. Uh, I think they'll do it, but it'll take time. Well, Biden's a unifying guy at heart, um, but a recent poll found that 52% of Republicans blamed him and not Trump for the riot at the Capitol, and a similar number endorsed Trump's big lie that the election was stolen. I mean, does that mean that there are sort of a certain, is that going to make the country sort of partially ungovernable? Or do you think that without Trump in the White House, without Trump kind of the cult of Trump feeding these opinions, that actually some of this will, will, will sort of calm down and you'll see those figures drop? Well, I think that the first thing to say is that the poll isn't quite as alarming as it first seems because it's 52% of registered Republicans, not the average Republican voter. I'm not saying it's good. I'm just saying it's not as bad as it may initially seem. Um, and Biden is a unifier by personality, but he doesn't have to fix everything. I think it's worth remembering that. He just has to make things better. Uh, and he's made you know, a bold start today. And, and you've talked about that at the top of this section. And also, it's worth remembering that the GOP and Trump haven't finished self-immolating yet by a, a very, very long way. In terms of you know, whether things can improve just by virtue of the fact that, that Trump is no longer there and you know, some of that air may have come out of things, um, I think hopefully, certainly a lot of the hair has <laughs> already exited stage right. And movements do need leaders. And we've learned that with our own anti-Brexit fight, you know, for instance, without an equal and opposite Farage figure, it was very difficult to get indifferent Remainers 
out there during the referendum. But as I tweeted yesterday, liberals just must never, ever be complacent again. Even if Trump disappears, there will always be other hate figures lining up in the wings, ready to exploit vulnerable people and and push a far-right agenda. And so the fight for liberal democracy, it just never ends. Um, It's hard won and easily lost. And with people fighting over the future of the Republican Party, um, with not everybody happy for it to just be the Trump party, do you see potential for Biden's beloved partisanship? Um, could the likes of Mitt Romney, Lisa Murkowski, Ben Sass, um, the kind of the sort of Trump skeptical Republicans, shall mm-hmm. we say, could they end up voting regularly with the Democrats because because their sort of perhaps their loyalty to the party has been dented by the last four years? I mean, as, as Nina said, the US remains, you know, a bitterly divided country and, and further impeachment processes are going to keep that that division front and centre. So who knows how it's going to play out, especially with Trump's chaos engine still clattering away in the background. But, you know, remember where, of course, there has been bipartisan support in both houses has been over the upholding of the Good Friday Agreement and sending a warning shot over to the UK uh, that, that they can kiss goodbye to a, a trade deal if if we mess around with peace on the island by reneging on an international treaty, for instance. I mean, whoever would have thought that the British government might be doing that. So there is some precedent already under sort of, you know, Biden's guidance, if you like, for some bipartisan messaging. Whether those figures you've named can be convinced, I I think probably on occasion, but not necessarily regularly. and, And the Democrats shouldn't count on their support for everything. Kim, it's not just Trump who's going, but all of his terrible appointees. You know, there's already been a sort of clear out of various parts of the US government. Will there be a feeling in diplomatic circles in Washington and uh, indeed sort of around the world where all the places America has ambassadors um, that that this is a new start? Yes, very much so. Um, There are 4,000 political appointees in the average US administration. 1,200 of them need Senate approval, uh, including all the ambassadors. And the top ambassadorial posts, uh, the big ones, places people like to go to, Paris, Rome, London, uh, whatever, tend to go to the biggest donors to the party and to the president's campaign. Uh, so all of the political appointees under Trump will leave or have left some of them already. Uh, so there'll be changes in a lot of the, the American embassies around the world. And there's a huge change in Washington and an awful lot of, of Democrats who've been waiting for four years in think tanks and in consultancies since the end of the Obama administration, hoping that it will be a one-term Trump presidency and the opportunity will come. They're all flooding back into those positions so almost any position that it counts and that is a serious decision-taking position, um, you will see a change. I mean, Biden, like said, we said, has um, already rejoined the, the Paris Accord. What do you think his, his other priorities should be when it comes to rebuilding bridges around the world after a fairly isolationist presidency? Yeah, I mean, remember amongst many, many, I mean, I was empathising with, um, those who were speaking earlier, about just the extraordinary experience of the last four years, just how bizarre some of it was, um, how malign and uh, disturbing some of it was, but just straight bizarreness. Remember, Trump at one point tried to buy Greenland. This stuff is, is I mean, if if Amanda Yanucci wrote a, you know, a screenplay about it, you'll say, oh, come on. <laughs> so um, these are extraordinary times. But... Uh, 
he won't rebuild relations with Europe. Um, Trump once said, I think, to the Swedish prime minister that he wished America could be neutral like Sweden and not part of NATO because NATO was an operation in which the Europeans ripped off America, got America to pay for their defence, and they could then spend all their money on um, social policies. I don't think you'll find Biden saying that. I think you'll find him on an early visit to NATO headquarters and the NATO summit where he will reaffirm US support for NATO, particularly Article 5. I don't think that, uh, I mean, Trump said the EU was worse than China. I think Biden will return America to traditional US policy that they support European integration. Remember, the Democrats aren't keen on Brexit. They think we've damaged ourselves and we've damaged Europe. I think he'll be tough on China. I think he will try and take America back into the Iran nuclear deal. But to get there, the Iranians will have to stop enriching beyond the 3% allowed in the deal and return to compliance with the deal first. And that may not be straightforward. So last week, we talked to Philip Stevens from the FT about the myth and reality of the special relationship. Uh, the Telegraph is already fretting about Biden moving a bust of Churchill in the in the Oval Office. You're obviously at the, at the heart of this relationship. Do, do you think that British politicians overstate uh, its strength or, or importance? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, the whole issue, the symbolism of the Churchill bust, is ridiculous. There are two Churchill busts in the White House. One sits on the passageway from the president's private quarters to you know, the main offices of the White House. And then George Bush, the second George Bush, the younger George Bush, had a second bust moved into, um, into the Oval Office. Obama said, one's enough, I want Martin Luther King in the Oval Office. So he put Martin Luther King there. And then Trump had both of them. I mean, Honestly, as a symbol of whether America cares by, about us or not, it is ridiculous. One of the foundation stones of the special relationship, which is the defense, security, and relationship, is as strong as ever, because they did their own thing through the four years of the Trump presidency and continue to build links. So that is, um, uh, is extraordinarily strong and will continue to prosper under, under Biden. The area where it may be more more difficult for us, where we have lost something is once upon a time, we were one of the 28 uh, countries around the EU table. And I was ambassador to the EU before Washington. The Americans would come to us pretty much every week to say, can you try and deliver this on this particular dossier, on this piece of EU foreign policy, or on this piece of EU legislation, which affects our ability to export. And where we agreed with them, we would work with them to try and deliver those outcomes. And this was a big part of that transatlantic channel of what went through it, of the substance went through it. And we're not around that table anymore. So what we have left is all the cultural bonds, economic commercial relationship is very strong, and the uh, defense, security, and intelligence relationship. We don't have that lead influence in the EU that we once had. And so that's, that's something that we will have to work around um, but you can't replace. And and I suppose also part of the, the, the narrative of the special relationship over the years has been about the, the personal relationships between uh, different leaders, Reagan and Thatcher, I suppose, being the kind of, uh, you know, the sort of peak of two very simpatico people. At certain point, Blair and, Blair and Clinton were getting on very well. 
Blair and Bush, perhaps with a, a, a more unhappy legacy. In terms of, you know, sort of working together on various things and specifically a, a US-UK trade deal, do you think Johnson will pay a price for, for insulting Obama that time, for trying to seem close to Trump? You know, will, will that kind of perhaps that, that personal mismatch between him and Biden have much of a real impact? Look, the short answer is we'll have to wait and see. I know that, and in fact, you know, some of them have said things publicly, that there are those Democrats um, who are important in the party, some of them are in the new administration, um, who resent in particular what Boris Johnson, of course, he was a prime minister at the time, but some of the things he said about Obama back in in five years or so ago, um, before the Brexit um, uh, campaign, and who remember that, and you know who um, you know who are not fans of of the Prime Minister. On the other side of the coin, I think Joe Biden is an arch pragmatist who in his political career built up a reputation for working across the aisle and working with Republicans, including some fairly dubious Republican figures. National interests uh, will prevail. So if we have stuff that we bring to the table, whether in defense and intelligence security or uh, economic opportunities for uh, United States or our chairmanship of the G7 later this year, chairmanship of the and hosting of the climate change summit. Areas where it is of value to the to the US to to work with us, then they can work together and will work together quite effectively. On personal relationship between Boris Johnson and, and, and Joe Biden, Biden's a very friendly, decent, amiable individual. Um, I don't think you have met anyone quite like like Boris Johnson at the top of British politics um, for a while. But um, there's no reason why they can't get along personally. But what it really counts is what we bring to the table, what we can deliver that helps Joe Biden achieve his objectives. Nina, uh, Trump's 2024 campaign started as soon as his presidency ended. Inevitably, he is uh, the clear favourite at this very, very early stage. Um, I mean, I, we, I try not to ask people to make too many predictions on the show. But what do you, what do you think are, are his chances by the time the sort of primaries roll around? Do you think he will have sort of maintained his position or, or, or dwindled? I think if you had asked me this question prior to January the 6th, the general belief was that even after he leaves office, Trump would be a veritable force in American politics, almost a kingmaker in the Republican Party, because as we discussed earlier in the podcast, he has the faithful backing of a sizable proportion of the American populace. However, um, given what happened in the Capitol on the 6th, there are... (laughs) Many powers that be who want to refuse to, who who don't wish for him to run for office again. Let's see what happens with the impeachment and whether or not he'll be barred from holding public office again. But again, when it comes to Trump, I think it would be a mistake to underestimate what he has unleashed in the name of Trumpism. He does have a lot of popular support. Although, of course, there'll be many people who want to make sure that his political career is now done and well kim Derek, we know you've got multiple appointments today um so you have to go but thanks so much for joining us for the first half thank you it was a pleasure this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real pos you need shopify for retail 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Meanwhile, on Brexit Island, the combination of Brexit and coronavirus has led to the biggest fall in Britain's population since the Second World War, according to the Economic Statistics Centre of Excellence, including an 8% drop in the population of London. That's 700,000 people. The think tank identified hospitality as especially hard hit and said that official statistics showing employment of UK-born people in London rising during the pandemic were, quote, hardly plausible. Naomi, before we talk about the economics, um, what does an exodus of foreign-born residents do to the the atmosphere, the the energy, the life of our cities. We're just going to become even less adept at dealing with people from overseas, aren't we? You know, we're just going to have even more people speaking English loudly and slowly rather than bothering to ever, you know, absorb any other bloody language or their culture. Um, And that just sort of, you know, (laughs) makes me want to tear my hair out. But it is a huge blow. It, It not only means that fewer Brits and, of course, British children get exposed to um, as many cultures and foods and faiths, but it also means fewer immigrants get the opportunity to talk up Britain when they return home. And of course, remember, most economic migrants don't stay permanently in the UK. They they go back to their countries and we would hope that they'd go back talking about what a great time they had and how brilliant Britain was and that that would help our soft power globally. But we're just becoming less cool and less relevant and therefore less powerful. Is it primarily a London issue or is it affecting cities in the rest of the country as well? Um, I mean, look, no, ne- neither Brexit nor COVID are or were exclusively London issues. And um, I looked at the numbers of national insurance um, numbers being issued in Birmingham in, in recent years and the plummeting number of EU nationals getting NI numbers there, coupled with a really tiny uptick in non-EU nationals getting NI numbers sort of just tells its own tale, really. It, definitely not just a London thing, um, definitely happening all over the country. Is there any way of putting a figure on how much money that kind of uh, of an exodus represents? I mean, it's not it's not like we said, not the only way to measure the importance of having people here. But, but mm-hmm. is is there a is there a ballpark figure for that? There is, and I didn't look that up before coming on this show. But there there, there is and will be, and there have been many, many, many studies done about the economic contributions of migrants, um, both for the capital but the, the whole country. And we do know that immigrants are net contributors to government coffers. We know that they are often wealth and job creators. When you think about that entrepreneurial spirit of migrants and and how they, you know are very good at setting up their own businesses and running them and, and creating jobs for, for others. And we also know that there is absolutely no evidence of deflationary pressures on domestic wages, except in the most low paid roles like fruit picking. Um, so, you know, th- this story really is, uh, of course, about how economically damaging such a mass uh, emigration and exit from this country um, will have. But if and when we start to grow again, it's going to be even harder for us to do so at speed without easy access to a migrant workforce, particularly now we've closed off that tap to free movement from the EU27. And a lot of these jobs are in the service industry and obviously things like restaurants won't be uh, won't be back in action for a while. So will it actually um, take a, a while before we see the effects? I was going to say like Brexit, but actually we're seeing the effects of Brexit straight away. Um, 
But do you think that sort of, you know, that coronavirus, while being part of this problem, is also, I suppose, going to delay, you know, us really noticing the consequences? Sure. Uh, you know, the, the, the atrophy is the thing that kills you because, you know, you don't often have that cliff edge moment of, of realising how bad things have got. But, uh, you know, rising unemployment caused by this Brexit COVID double whammy uh, may well mask some of that issue, as you say. I mean, I'm not sure we'll be able to replace Spanish midwives at very short notice, for instance. You know, when we talk about retail, that's one thing. When we're talking about, uh, you know, social care and health care, that's really quite another. And I think we're going we're gonna to have a big shock uh, when we realise how few, few of the, the, the brilliant EU migrants that have been working in the NHS we've, we're, we're now being left with. Um, Nina, London's been an, an international city for a very long time. Do you think that uh, kind of an exodus on this scale, and presumably also that's going to be reflected in the number of new people that that want to or are able to come to the city, is is going to sort of is going to sort of bring that to a to a close, or at least you know diminish um, that aspect of London. Absolutely, London is a global international city um, made up of immigrants and migrants, and I mean it's the reason I initially chose to come to London is the global allure of cities like London, New York, and losing that would diminish London. Um, I, it, it remains to be seen because I think there are still many amazing things about the city that people from all around the world are still want to going to want to come, but it is a city of immigrants. And attitudes in Britain towards immigrants have actually changed notably since the referendum. I think you noted on the podcast before that within months, opinions on immigration flipped from net negative to net positive, continue to rise. A majority of British people now think immigration is a positive thing. Um, why has that not seemed to filter through to uh, to the Home Office and the government in general? I think that immigration has been such a driving force in terms of reshaping British politics over the last, you know, seven to five years, arguably being the most kind of compelling reason that Britons voted for Brexit, that politicians are perhaps hesitant to do anything dramatic in terms of policy measures to be more favourable to immigration. You could make the case that Brexit is working, quote unquote, in terms of making the public more amenable to immigration. But this is not an issue, I think, that politicians take lightly. Um, it's ended lots of political careers, and I, I would strongly make the case that it is the one issue that led to, to Brexit. Uh, because when Brexiters were uh, accused of being xenophobic, God forbid, they claimed we're not against immigration, we're just against the unfair advantage that EU citizens enjoy. So we want the best and the brightest from everywhere. Did you believe that? Or do you think that was just a ploy to win over minority voters? You know, there were some communities that voted for leave in, in surprising numbers because they thought, oh, great, you know, this kind of favours, you know, our friends and, 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 and relatives, you know, not, not just sort of Poles and Hungarians. Yeah, I mean, I think there are some people that believe that and in theory it might sound good. And there is no doubt that this narrative was used as a cynical political ploy to get non-EU migrants to support Brexit. Um, of course, at the same time, as you're pushing this line about being fair to immigrants from all around the world, you also have this arbitrary cap on numbers, uh, which would mean, you know, that not only do you have to get rid of all EU migrants, but all international non-EU immigrants as well. So uh, it's a nonsense. It was definitely used as a political weapon, very cynically. 
And what needs to happen for British political leadership to become immigration positive? Do we need, I mean, would it, would it be, for example, seeing obvious and, and serious economic costs? Or was it actually just going to take a, a sort of new generation of leaders and I guess a, a new generation of voters? I think the economic costs will have a lot to do with it. And I also think that this will be a generational thing. I think there needs to be an honest conversation about immigration. I'm a migrant. I'm an EU national. Um, and there were really important milestones in Britain's recent history with the EU that had an impact with regards to the sentiment about immigration, right? So when the Eastern European countries joined the bloc and the UK government, the UK government decided it was Tony Blair's government not to exercise transitional controls on workers from these countries. And many of them, notably Polish people came to the UK. There was a legitimate question to be had about whether or not there were too many migrant workers coming too quickly. And unless we can talk about these issues in a fair and balanced way, um, I think it's very difficult to have a productive conversation about immigration. Naomi, a relentless focus on EU migration dominated British politics for the past decade or more, the, the age of Farage. Now that freedom of movement has ended, are these people just going to move on to, you know, asylum seekers, migrants from outside the EU in order to keep the issue alive because its sort of political utility is too great to let it go? I mean, I wouldn't say they'd move on to. I, I think they're already there, rejoicing, you know, at yes. Farage's interventions in the channel and Pretty Patel's wave machine and, and all of this. And that's because that's what nativists do. You know, the Brexit project was one of English nationalism fueled by nativism. And, and history has taught us that nationalism always inevitably leads to ethno-nationalism. Um, and it, it's why, actually, um, we at Best for Britain th this weekend analysed uh, the huge MRP seat poll that had come out in the Sunday Times the weekend before to try and understand the impact of um, the Brexit Party, now Reform UK, standing down at the next election again in Conservative held seats because the story that the Sunday Times ran was, uh, oh, look, you know, Starmer's really gaining ground. And, and yes, Labour were in that poll set to win back swathes of the red wall. But what the article failed to mention was that there was still this sizable chunk of, of you know, upwards of 5% polling for the Reform UK party, Brexit party. And if you transfer that vote over to the Conservatives, which let's remember UKIP stood down for the Conservatives in lots of seats in 2017, Nigel Farage's Brexit party stood down for them in many seats in 2019, if they do that again at the next election, boom, you've got a very, very comfortable Conservative majority. Oh, that's depressing. <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't warn me you were going to say that. Well, um, I mean, I think the point is that the, 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 you know, the progressive parties need to do a pact on their side in much the same way the regressives do it on theirs until we've changed the voting system. It's as simple uh, as that. Ah, you have mentioned this before. Finally, the Hong Kong visa deal gives 5.4 million residents of the former colony the right to live and work here. I mean, how does this tally with Patel's home office? Are they just are they just assuming that that that, that most people aren't going to take you know take up the offer? I mean, I, I think that that Patel's home office, um, you know, are, are pretty ham fisted rather than iron fisted given that they don't even know how to avoid deleting criminal records. I just don't think they've got any kind of clue about Hong, Hong Kong emigration patterns into the UK. Um, but I do think that there are probably very large chunks of the libertarian 
wing of the Tories who aren't racist at all. Um, they're sort of very economically libertarian, though, and they rather like the idea of the UK playing home to wealthy Hong Kongers who have come from a very low tax environment to help put ever more pressure on the UK to follow suit and, and become a country for, you know, e- e- you know, even more attractive to casino capitalists. Now, back for 2021, it's overrated, underrated, where one of our panellists chooses one personal concept from the world of politics that doesn't get the attention it deserves and one to chuck in the dustbin of history, along with you-know-who. Nina Schick, what are your choices? So we're going to stick with the theme of the US inauguration, US politics, US presidents, and we're going to talk about the most overrated, underrated US presidents. So overrated, I would say Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States, so-called people's president, and not unlike the uh, recently deported um, inhabitant of the White House, a populist. He adorns the $20 bill, but really he should have no place there, Um, not least because he was a slaver and an ethnic cleanser. And I think most forgivable are his unforgivable are his policies to the Native Americans, which was nothing short of genocidal. Had he lived today, I think he might be called up on an international tribunal for crimes against humanity. So ditch him, ditch Jack. <laughs> and, uh, and who is underrated? I think in terms of underrated, I have to go for Jimmy Carter, um, one-term president, you know, the down-home, jeans-wearing peanut farmer with infectious grin who promised to heal the country after Watergate. Um, he was really, really principled and a deeply idealistic leader, and I think that's become really abundant since he's left office. Ironically, he's become the model post-president uh, with Nobel Prize-winning efforts to help the downtrodden, to monitor elections, and to search for peace in some of the darkest corners of the world. But even now, I think historians are starting to relook at his term um, and understand that it was a miserable economy and the Iran hostage crisis that overwhelmed him. They're starting to rewrite history in a more favorable light for good old Jimmy Carter. We've reached the end of the show, which means it's time for But Your Emails. The humble email is possibly the only digital platform that Donald Trump has yet to be banned from. (laughs) And you can use it to send us your questions. This week's question comes from Sochil Benjamin. She asks, does the prominent position of aggressively mediocre slash actively failing women in public life, such as Priti Patel, Dido Harding, Theresa May, and Liz Truss, mean that feminism is now complete and women can now succeed by being just as average slash subpar as men? If not, does it mean anything for feminism? I love this question um, because uh, my father is an ardent feminist and would always tell everyone about what feminist he was. And the thing he always used to say was, we won't have achieved feminism, you know, and equality for the sexes until mediocre women are allowed to balls things up to the same extent that mediocre men have been doing since time immemorial. So great question. Um, So uh, to an extent, yes, it shows that we are making some advances, uh, but come on, nowhere near 
completing the projects are we uh we only you know need to look at who's still on the boards and controlling the the FTSE companies the fact that gains that have been made for women on boards have been made in non-exec roles rather than in executive roles looking at salary differentials particularly uh for for women of childbearing age you know we're, we're nowhere close but maybe we're inching inching a bit closer and yes you know these these I mean, these are not mediocre women, the ones that you mentioned in your question, by the way, that are definitely failing women, um, getting a chance to, to cock it all up uh, in slightly smaller numbers than the boys, but in bigger numbers than previously, we've got to say is a step forward. I was once on a panel uh, about diversity in um, literature, obviously, I was the token white man, and uh, somebody made the point that, that that it was all very well celebrating, you know, exceptional black writers, exceptional Muslim women writers, but actually the dream was that when, when somebody had just gone totally off the boil and they could still publish their subpar fifth novel... Yeah, <laughs> as as a as a black man or a Muslim woman or whatever, and he went right. That's that's the dream was basically <laughs> was was basically sort of to be to, to be able to get away with averageness because it's all too easy to praise the obviously excellent, and that that's not that's not that's not getting you all the way there. True, 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 true. So thank you to feminist icons, uh, Pretty Patel and Liz Truss. That's the end of the show. Thank you to Naomi. Thank you. And Nina. Thank you. Now it's time for our theme song, Demons the Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. They'll be able to listen to our extended bonus edition and get it on Thursday. Stick around after the music for a teaser. Hello, and a big thanks from me to George Ballantyne, Katrine Bretner, Richard Spate, Daniela Sele, and Russell. Hi, and thank you from me to Paula Fister, David Irwin, Stuart Charlesworth, Vanessa Hill, and Vicky Waters. And finally, thank you to Rob Hellier, Peter, Adair Gordon Orr, Gemma Sheridan, and Becky McMurdo. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Doreen Linsky with Nina Schick and Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusive to Patreon people. This week, why do so many middle-class British people insist that they're actually working class? According to the British Social Attitude Survey for the LSE, almost half of Britons in middle-class jobs identify as working class, and a quarter of people whose parents also did professional work also identify as working class. Among the people in the survey are Ella, an actor who insists she is working class because her private school was one of the small ones, quite cheap. And Mike, an accountant who talked less about his architect father, because he was a technician made good, really, and more about his grandmother, who'd worked in a mill as a child. Um, Naomi, did this surprise you as much as it surprised me? Um, not, not really, um, because our identity is formed by so much more than just our our jobs. So even though there may now be more jobs in the British economy that would tend we would tend to classify as sort of you know middle class jobs, um, people don't just define themselves based on their income or education level or how they spend their 
their nine to five. If, if you were born into a working class family or, you know, have grandparents who were undereducated like mine or who may have, you know, done more manual jobs or, or maybe not even worked at all, then that defines you as much, if not more than your own job and wealth, I think. You know, we really do assume things from our families. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that's it's not as surprising maybe for me. Well, how do you identify? Well, obviously, I'm I'm lower upper middle class. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. No. I'm joking. No, I, I, no, no. I guess if forced to pick, I'd say middle class. Um, I am really weird, though. Um, cause so, so none of my grandparents went to university at all. And on my father's side, we came from very humble beginnings. That's not the weird bit, by the way. That's the normal bit. Uh, my dad was born in the same bed as his mother, you know, 20 years um, after she was. Uh, but he did quite well for himself. And he actually got made um, a life peer by Tony Blair. And so weirdly, I've got a title. Um, that I don't use so I'm this sort of odd mishmash of working class and nobility which I guess kicks me out somewhere as you know middle middle class it's I I found this very bizarre the whole thing because when I was at university I only knew one person who went to a a private that was a taster of the extended edition of this week's podcast if you'd like a little bit more oh god what now every week without ads and a day early then sign up to back us on patreon for as little as two pounds a month you'll be helping the podcast and we'll appreciate it enormously thanks for listening and see you next week